Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 32 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. We, of course, look into the art of pitching every single week here with the five-time World Series champ, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, our resident research ace, James Smythe, and myself, and we have a lot to cover this week. Uh, yeah, just like um, Angel Hernandez's strike zone on Sunday Night Baseball, lots to cover there. David, you spent Sunday night in Philly. Phillies and Brewers, a combined 26 strikeouts in that game. I don't know. As a, a pitcher, here we're on a pitching podcast. What'd you think of that strike zone Sunday night? It's, it's, that might be the one game so far this year that becomes uh, kind of the, 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 the poster child look for uh, robo umps because <laughs> it did dominate the game. And that, that is a problem. You want consistency from the umpire and even the old school umpires that, you know, that I pitched when I pitched, uh, as long as it was consistent, they gave you margins off the edges. Yeah. That ball's off the, off the plate a little bit outside, but you got that call. The ball in the inside corner had to be on the inside corner. You didn't get any high strikes. Yeah. It got a little wider, the more consistent you were like Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin, or if you're really an established pitcher, you got the benefit of the doubt, but you knew what you were going to get and it was consistent and it was consistent for both sides. And, and that's the problem, you know, when, when it's not consistent, it's all over the map and it's a high strike. It's an outside strike. It's a low strike. Hitters go crazy. They don't know where the strike zone is. And I, we actually, I actually asked Bryce Harper last night on the telecast when he was mic'd up about, do, does he have to change his approach when an umpire is all over the map and calling a big strike zone? And he said, no, I can't do that. Uh, I have to stay within what I know, uh, what I've learned. And what I've trained to, to be the strike zone, according to my eye. And that's the same answer Wade Boggs, the great Wade Boggs, the Hall of Famer gave years ago about, no, 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 I'm not changing my strike zone that I've worked so hard on developing over the years because of some umpire that's inconsistent or, or has a bad zone on that particular day. So, yeah, it really did impact the game. Yeah, the offense is down enough. I don't think we need any more obstacles here for hitters and, and anything getting else in their uh, anything else getting in their way here at the moment. But you you mentioned Bryce on the broadcast, David. That was a little bit different. It wasn't just for one flash inning. I mean, obviously he was DHing, so he had a little bit more time to spend. And you kind of had an active dugout reporter on Sunday with Bryce Harper. That was pretty sick. It was, and it was unrehearsed and not planned. And we, we were pleasantly surprised by it. You know, he would take his earpiece out when he wanted to be all business and then he'd go put it back in and we just kind of watched him do it. And when he put it back in, we would say, Hey, Bryce, you still there? And he would say, yeah, I'm here. And then, okay, well, thanks, man. We're going to keep going with it. So to me, the players and the owners coming off of the lockout, all the acrimony, the players are always saying compared to other sports, why don't we get marketed more? We need more FaceTime. We need something to pump up the stars of the game. The Mike Trout example compared to the NBA stars. Well, this is one way to do it, to show your personality. Joe, Joey Votto was so good. I think he set the bar high for everybody else and everybody saw, wow, this can really help us. And, you know, that's, that's what, uh, that's, that's the whole point of the whole thing is it's about marketing. It's about showing your true authentic self. It's about showing your personality and, Sunday night baseball is a great forum to do it. So, well, yeah, I, I encourage it. I hope we see more of it. You're going to have a good one this week, too. I think I heard Francisco Lindor is coming up with the, the Phillies and the Mets from Queens on Sunday night. So yeah. looking forward to that. Um, I tell you what, guys, I really enjoyed last week's episode. Mainly, I, I love talking to you guys about pitching, but also just because of the things that we've kind of hinted towards and uh, you know discussed about what we wanted to do on this podcast. 
obviously we're able to do it now because there are games being played and there's stuff just coming to our feet here and, and, and all this information that we're starting to accumulate, there's stuff to talk about. I thought we did uh, a really, you know, I thought we had a really fun time last week, just kind of going all over the place and talking about pitching. We're kind of, kind of do the same thing here this week. And we're going to be looking at some, some new or revamped pitches, whatever you want to call it. We're going to see some of those new or revamped pitches from an, a handful of starting pitchers and what those new pitches are telling us so far. And we're also going to take a look at a starting pitcher, I guess you could call it, starting pitcher Garrett Whitlock of the Boston Red Sox as he kind of transitions into the rotation. We're also going to touch on the Brewers rotation. We're going to touch on the Mariners rotation. We have this week in pitching history. James has a sick declaration that he kind of predicted before the first pitch of the season was even thrown. It came to fruition this weekend. So he needs to just shout out, uh, shout out that prediction because it was almost as on the money as one can get with, without being on the money. So we're going to get to that in a little bit later on in the show. Quick reminder though, this episode brought to you by tops and there is a big time event that, Tops is hosting this week. They're hosting a three-day virtual event. It's beginning Friday, April the 29th through Sunday, May 1st. It's called Tops Digicon 2022. And the event celebrates fandoms across sports and entertainment. It puts the spotlight on the Tops community of collectors who are passionate and play their digital collectible apps like Tops Bunt, which we've talked about a number of times. We've partaken in that. They also participate in the tops nft releases and there is going to be so much in store over the tops digicon three-day weekend here there's going to be daily programming from 11 30 a.m to 5 p.m eastern but on saturday that's going to be the big day for tops bunt they're going to have interviews with aaron judge with pete alonso brett phillips from the tampa bay rays and also not to bury the lead here but our very own trevor Plouffe. And Peter Moylan, they'll be squaring off in an epic head-to-head bunt trivia face-off. So that is all happening this weekend. Definitely want to tune in for Peter Moylan and Trevor Plouffe. It's on the Tops Digicast Twitch channel, and it's free. So you don't have to worry about paying a cost to attend this convention. It's, uh, again, Tops Digicon. You want to download the Tops Bunt app to get your Bunt Insider Pass, and be sure to tune in to Tops Digicon 2022. Again, 11.30 a.m. Eastern, Friday, April 29th is when all the action starts. Twitch.tv backslash Tops Digicast. So all that is settled. Pretty big weekend there. You have Aaron Judge, you have Trevor Plouffe, Peter Moreland. And we've seen a a pretty big weekend. Uh, We're coming off a pretty big weekend, I should say, from some... Starting pitchers who have been lighting it up, some who kind of found their groove as well. You have another one uh, starting tonight, this episode, of course, being released on on Tuesday the 26th, and we'll get to all of them here. But let's start with the opener. And David, coming off an abbreviated spring training, we kind of knew that there was going to be an all-hands-on-deck approach, especially to the pitching staffs, and we saw that with some roster expansion. But the numbers are coming in, and we are learning a lot about pitch usage in the third week of April or so here, right? 
Yeah, we really are. And, and I think people who follow the game understand that the rosters have been expanded. The Yankees were carrying 16 pitchers because of the shortened spring training. The workload of the starters has been reduced to the first couple, three weeks of the season. The relief pitchers workload is usage is up and, and the numbers are in so far. And, you know, the notion that, you know, using more relievers in a game, you know, and one of them might screw up or it's hard to get them all online and in sync. It really is not true. Uh, James and I have talked about this. It's really, you have to be better than the starting pitcher the third time through the, you know, through the lineup uh, that, that really is, is the measuring stick. But so far in 2022 relievers have pitched, 53% of the, uh, the uh, face 53% of the batters so far. And this is according to Mike Petriello and it was with major league baseball.com. And if you don't, if you're not following Mike Petriello, you're missing out. Cause he, he has a wealth of information on, on all why all sorts of subjects, according to baseball. So starting pitchers so far in 2022, a 706 OPS, not bad relief pitchers, a 640 OPS and slugging a 340. Uh, slugging percentage relief pitchers and starting pitchers are 392 slugging percentage. So the relief pitchers are, have been dominant so far. Um, we've seen it with the Yankees. We've seen it uh, throughout the league. The velocity is up. It seems like all these relief pitchers are training and pitch design and medical data has really helped them. They're throwing weighted balls. We've talked about this a lot. You know, I don't want to be redundant, but velocity's up these guys are coming out of nowhere this guy's throwing 98 where he was throwing 96 last year I mean how many stories of that have we seen one after the other so uh, that, that's a big story you know the, the the use of relief pitchers the dominance of relief pitchers is really uh, the story so far of, of the young season and also the you know everybody's talking about the, the baseballs as well and James you mentioned it last week very strong segment by the way last week James and but them uh, destroying the baseball. Well, the humidors are having a big impact, according to Mike Petriello as well, who tweeted this out. Of the 20 new parks that have humidors this year, there's 20 new parks that have humidors. Uh, the slugging is down 107, 107 points. So you think about that. The ones uh, uh, that uh, already had humidors in them are only down in slugging 0.005%. So the new parks and the new humidors are having a big impact as well. So uh, it, it's, it's an interesting follow the relief pitchers, the dominance, the high velocity of relief pitchers, the pitch design, and then the humidors and the new parks definitely having an impact in the game. Right. And, and Mike does a great job laying out because it's a storyline. It's a huge storyline early in the season is how offense is down, but then to cut it up and show that, well, if you look at the decrease, the vast majority of the decrease is just from the relief pitchers. So starting pitchers have the same on-base percentage allowed as they did last year. Slugging is down a little bit, 31 points. But for relief pitchers, the OBP and the slugging are down 21 points and 55 points. So it's a much bigger decrease. So the relievers are carrying more of the load there as far as suppressing offense. Similar breakdown with the ballparks, the ones that already had humidors, very little change. And then the parks that have added humidors are really um, taking up the bulk of the decrease in offense. So by cutting it into groups like that, you can really isolate it and say, here's the reason why. Well, let me ask you guys this, because these are big pieces of evidence here. But this week that we're in, it's the last week, the last full week of expanded rosters starting May 2nd, each roster 
is subtracted by by two spots. And most of these spots, David, like you alluded to, a lot of teams carrying extra relievers. So maybe in a month's time or so, are we going to have a better feel or are we going to just be flat out more normalized with the offense? It's going to be an interesting follow. I mean, the humidors are still going to remain, you know, in those new ballparks. So, you know, that, that will be something to, to pay attention to as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one or two less relief pitchers on a staff might entice more managers to push their starters a little further in the game. Uh, that's been talked about a lot, even going back to the lockout. There was lots of radical new ideas thrown out there to, to entice, you know, longer longer usage of starting pitching and some even tying the designated hitter to the starting pitcher. If you take the starting pitcher out of the game, you lose the DH. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen in the future, but that's that's the trend to follow. You want to see. You know, who's starting this game tonight? You know, the romance of that, of buying a ticket to go see so-and-so pitched, you know, whether it's a, was Tom Seaver back in the day or Dwight Gooden or nowadays, if it's Max Scherzer or who, who it might be, Garrett Cole, that you want that starting pitcher allure to, to be a big draw. I still do that. Am I a rare species? Like I, I feel like people my age probably still do, but for the younger crowd, I'd rather, you know, I'd, I'd want to know what, what they do. You think I'm a rare species though? If I kind of go on MLB.com each day and take a look at the probables. No, not really. I, I think that's, you, it's what fans do. And there still is a handful. There still are a handful of really dominant starters. Mm-hmm. You want to, you want to follow them. You know, that's why Max Scherzer got the contract he did at his age, because they are worth their weight in gold. There was, a, you know, if you can pitch 200 innings, that's a handful of pitchers anymore starting pitchers and you know Adam Wainwright was one of those guys that, that was right around 200 innings pitched last year at his age so yeah be, there's maybe five pitchers that might throw 200 pitches 200 innings this year yeah that that's worth a follow in my book I right, judging but go ahead James sorry. <laughs> sorry no I just I remember I'm, I'm like you I remember going through the newspaper and seeing the 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 standings and the the probable pitchers for that day and say oh that's a good one that's a good one yeah I still do it and when David says you know, the, it's kind of, you know, the kind of, kind of sounds antiquated. I wonder if I'm like a dying breed here, but, uh, but you mentioned the 200 innings potential. We're going to talk about a guy who has given length right from the outset a little bit later on, but I also uh, alluded to it right before the opener. There are a handful of pitchers that either were in action this weekend or are starting in the first couple of days. This podcast is going to be released this week. And they all have something new about them. And I guess in certain cases, it could be said that it's the reason why they are succeeding as well as they have. Some, you could say it's the reason why they've broken out as big pieces to their respective pitching staff. So let's get right into it. Which new pitches stand out the most here? And again, like I said, just throw a quick run through of certain pitchers and either their new weapons a revamped a refined weapon. And I want to begin with the New York Mets because they continue to win. They continue to have success. And people say, you know, they're kind of doing it without the flash. They're just kind of playing really sound, crisp baseball at the moment. But with their pitching since the beginning of the season, they've been having to do it without Jacob DeGrom. We know this. And it's like they're pitching as if DeGrom was in the rotation anyway at this point. Big reason why? Tyler McGill. And... I was watching McGill on Sunday as the Yankee game was finished up. The Mets were playing in Arizona and it was really like the first time that I was watching him 
in real time. Just we didn't have uh, the time to see him pitch other than watching highlights up until this point. But that fastball, it just kind of just pops out of his hand. And between his his frame being 6'7", and the velocity that he works with, really imposing presence. You can you can tell there watching it on TV. But then his slider, between the whiff percentage that it has and the way he's using it in certain counts, what do we make of the slider from Tyler McGill, David? It's a great pick on your part. Uh, he is a big old donkey, isn't he? I mean, 6'7", 230. I mean, he reaches like he hands the ball to the catcher. He has over seven feet of extension on his pitches. You know, major league average is down in the low six feet category, six feet, two inches. He's seven feet, two inches releasing the ball that much closer to home plate. I think that's, that's part of, you know, his allure, part of his effectiveness. Um, There's no real, you know, when you break down his slider in a vacuum, I mean, the spin rate, there's nothing really off the charts with it. The break, the vertical or horizontal movement on his pitches, nothing really jumps off kind of almost even average ish. If at best average, the characteristics, when you look under the hood of the slider. So it makes me feel like the tick up and velocity that he's had and the, the, you know, the, the collective nature of his repertoire makes his slider that much more effective. He's had a big bump in velocity, you know, over a mile per hour. That's a big deal in, in major league baseball. If you bump it up, he's, he's up over 96 and throwing a lot of 97s and 98s. He's got a power change up about 89 miles an hour. So the slider is the one pitch that gives him a little separation. It's about 85 miles an hour. So from 97 to 85, that's a good variation in velocity. And then the extension he gets on it. But yeah, when you look at it just in and of itself, it's like, ah, okay, it's a nice little slider. Breaks down more than it breaks side to side. Has a nice little, it's a tight little break to it. A nice little shape to it. But there's nothing that really stands out that, you know, it looks like a wiffle ball slider or a blitz ball or anything like that, right? So I think it's just, you know, he's throwing harder. He's big. He's throwing harder. Throws a lot of strikes, very confident on the mound. I think that that plays into it. It's more like the, the sum is greater than, than all the parts, you know. And so uh, it, it's he, he's, he's a big lift for the Mets, no doubt about it. I love it. And the slider is working this year. Batters are one for 13 with no extra base hits and six strikeouts against that slider. And the swing and miss rate is off the charts. The whiff percentage, 48% of the swings against McGill slider have come up empty. So whatever he's doing, it's working. I think the variety of the pitches that complements that blazing fastball too, within the slider, like you're saying, the vertical drop is so noticeable, but then he can tighten it up and just punch in a hard slider as well. makes it really difficult to, have to differentiate if you're standing in the batter's box and and the numbers show it there, James. So yeah, I think that slider being a nice complement to the increased fastball velocity is a big reason why Tyler McGill is, is succeeding so far out of the gate. And it, yeah, like you said, it doesn't help. I mean, it doesn't hurt that, uh, you know, he can essentially hand the ball to his catcher with that sick extension. He is I mean, Sunday was, I'll admit, it was the first time where I really had a chance to pay attention to him, watch multiple innings in real time. And he's a massive presence out there. It was really, it was interesting. You're seeing it at at Chase Field in Arizona, obviously not a left-hander, but I'm like, really, really big legs, a little bit thicker than Randy Johnson, but I just couldn't help but think of the big unit just because of how tall he was and just the overall size 
and the presence that he showed on the mound. I think that's what it sums up to. He has a terrific presence on the pitching mound for the Mets. So I'm, uh, I know we did this last week, but yeah, he, he made me even more of a believer just watching him in real time. Let's go over to the Yankees here. There are two pitchers in the starting rotation that have caught my attention for the same reason. And I guess you could throw Nestor Cortez in here as well, but I, I mean, it's tough to say, like we've spent enough time on Nestor Cortez because we do think he's the real deal here, but specifically a couple of other Yankee starters and the cut fastball, the cutter, Luis Severino and Garrett Cole. Luis Severino's coming back from Tommy John surgery back in the starting rotation. And it just seems like he's shaken off any rust that would come from being a Tommy John recipient. There's usually that, that 15, this is the way I play it in my head. You usually need like 15 to 20 outings after coming back from Tommy John surgery to kind of shake off that rust. I feel like that's what recent history has shown us, but he has introduced a cutter into his already explosive arsenal. What has the cutter done for the rest of his pitching? Well, it gives him a breaking ball package. You know, I, I sort of a, use the metaphor of a goal line package in football. You know, you have sort of a, a you know, a, you know, a bag of tricks, a bag of weapons that you use when you're in the red zone for a hit or for a pitcher. It's when you're in the red zones, when you have two strikes and then what is your package? And the cutter gives Severino a couple of different looks with his breaking ball. It's a game changer for me, for Luis Severino, as opposed to Garrett Cole, who's got already a knuckle curve and a slider and now a cutter to go with it. It's kind of a, you know, an embarrassment of riches for Garrett Cole, but with Severino, it's a big deal. I pay attention to the shape of the cutter. To me, a cut fastball is really like Mariano, just a, a zip more of a horizontal movement than vertical. Uh, Severino's got both. He's got great shape on that. It's almost like a hard slider. And now his old slider has become more like a curveball. So he gets more separation velocity wise. He's controlling the break. Uh, they are swing and miss type pitches for him. And it gives him a couple of different weapons to go to. Whereas before it was just kind of that slider fastball slider with Sevy and improving changeup, but his slider kind of, it was a little inconsistent at times. Now, He's got it dialed in. He's got a quick one that has both vertical and horizontal movement. And then his old slider is like a curveball now. Really good depth on it. So, yes, I'm a believer with Severino. It's a game changer. Garrett Cole, I need to see more because he's already got, you know, top shelf, top line stuff. So, you know, with him at a cutter, it's like, oh, geez, okay. <laughs> Another great pitch for Garrett Cole. But Sevy, Sevy, it's a game changer in my mind. It's promising to see a new pitch have success that quickly, especially for a guy coming off the injury. Coney, you mentioned the horizontal movement, the break on, on that cutter. 2.7 inches above average, according to StatCast. That's 32% more break than the average uh, cutter. So already quick results with Seve, and, and he's been getting a lot of swings and misses with it too. And with Cole, I hear you, David, but just based on what we saw, I guess, from Sunday with how he used it against Cleveland – and the embarrassment of riches that he has look first couple of starts obviously weren't good, but then you kind of see him return to form. Everything falls into place in his last outing against Cleveland. If you were going to kind of shoehorn the cutter into his arsenal, judging from what you know about Garrett Cole's stuff, his track record, when do you think would be the ideal situation for him to use that pitch? Well, theoretically, a cutter is usually is supposed to be designed to, 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 for you to have better command of it. You're not fully spinning the ball or rotating your wrist over 
to try to generate movement with with a breaking type pitch. It's supposed to be off of your fastball. So for me, a right-handed pitcher to a left-handed batter becomes extremely effective where you can pitch inside. You can do what we call speed up the bat in middle counts or to get a strike or to get a hitter to pull a ball foul. If you throw that cutter into lefties uh, with one strike or to try to get to one strike or get to two strikes, then it can set you up for your finish pitch afterwards. So to me, it's a middle count pitch for a righty to a lefty. Uh, if you can get a little more depth on it, a little more vertical movement downward on that cutter, then it can become a good finish pitch for a right-handed batter, a righty on a righty. You know, generally when you're wanting, you're wanting to get a swing and miss pitch, you want a little vertical movement on it. You want it to, to, to have two planes. You know, the perfect shape would be side to side and downward tilt, right? Vertical and horizontal movement and that perfect little shape to get a swing and a miss. The cut fastball, I think, kind of stays on plane a little more. And for me, that, that's a great pitch to lefties to get inside on them, to make them conscious of, of, of anything on the inner half of the plate. All right, let's go to San Diego and check out Nick Martinez. And this is a pitcher that you know you may have known from several years ago, pitching with, with the Rangers, kind of a middle-of-the-pack pitcher. He went and pitched in Asia. The Padres signed him to a deal, a multi-year deal, and brought him back to the majors this season. And some of the stuff that you're noticing with him as he returns to the big leagues, and this has been written about, but it's also now visible with a handful of starts, the changeup quality has been really noticeable. And he was a little shaky on Friday against the Dodgers. He walked five hitters, gave up two home runs to LA. The Padres just seemingly cannot beat the Dodgers, but he has changed the grip on that pitch since his last stint in the majors. And the numbers show that it's become his main secondary pitch behind his four-seamer. And it's led to a lot of swings and misses here. So you couple that pitch with the way Martinez fits into this rotation. What does that type of weapon present to hitters when you take a look at what the Padres rotation is as a whole? Because Martinez, it just feels like is going to be staying in there no matter when you have guys coming off the IL because they have certain pitchers that are sidelined right now. It just seems like Martinez is going to be a guy that they've invested in and they're going to have be in that rotation moving forward. Well, it's, it's a great uh, pick Shaq, because, you know, when you look under the hood at these pitches and, and in particular his changeup, there is a noticeable difference. Uh, and you, you know, everything I just said about the cutter and the shape of the pitch kind of applies to a changeup for Martinez. And, when he's throwing to left-handed batters or, or right-handed batters, the vertical movement well above average, 3.7 inches more than average on, on the vertical movement downward on that changeup. And also side to side horizontal movement. He's got two, almost two and a half inches more movement than the average horizontal moving changeup in the major league. So uh, that, that is significant, that type of movement. So he, that's swing and miss. You can make it go down and you can make it break away. Uh, that is that is nirvana for any pitcher if you can get that two-plane break on any off-speed pitch and he's got it it's real and the look under the hood says whoa it jumps out of the, out of the page off the page at you and he's also uh, modified his curveball too so whatever he learned over pitch, pitching in asia certainly has paid off he's got 7.9 inches more break downward vertical movement on his curveball as well drop the drop on his curveball is, is, is off the charts. So, yes, he learned how to make the ball move. 
it's gotten it's gotten him back to the big leagues. It's gotten him a job. It gives him a chance to excel. So yeah, it's a good pick. The changeup looks real. He's a great story, and that changeup, forty-two percent swing and miss rate, and so far not a hit against it. Oh for fifteen with six Ks, and uh, not bad for a Fordham guy there, Shaq. That's right, Fordham Ram, eighteenth round pick by the Rangers. Put it all together and is now back in the big leagues. And I think, yeah, he's going to fit in nicely moving forward with the Manias, the Darvishes, the Musgroves. David, you mentioned the being able to kind of move a pitch both directions as like Nirvana. Being like in the weeds, pitching talk here. Is, is that like the ultimate sense of utopia when you come to the realization that you can make the same pitch dance in two different directions? Well, it is. It gives you more margin for error. And the, the only way I can explain this is, um, you know, if you've got a curveball or a slider that has more downward tilt than side to side movement, sort of a true curveball, and you get vertical movement down that's well above average, but the side to side or horizontal movement is below average. If you hang that pitch, that's the one that sits there. It spins and it sits, and that's the home run pitch. If you hang a breaking ball that has a little, a little bit of both at two plane break, you might be able to get them off the end of the bat. You still have some protection on hanging breaking balls. So if you get a little sweep to it, the sweeper, the whirly, that's the big buzzword, you know, that everybody in the league is throwing. The reason you want some sweep on your breaking ball is because it does give you some coverage. It's up. Oh no, I hung it. That's a home run pitch, but it broke just enough to get them off the end of the bat. It's going to keep the ball in the ballpark, especially, you know, the way the balls are traveling now, that might be a big difference in today's environment that you can get two plane breaks so that when you hang it, you still have some, you know, it's just like an insurance. You have a little bit of insurance on that pitch. Another tool to kind of take out of the toolbox there for some major league teams who are looking for that next edge, I guess. All right, guys, some quick hits as we go around the league before we get to three up, three down this week in pitching history. Let's zero in on Garrett Whitlock. He made his first start in the majors as a big leaguer over the weekend. And he tossed four innings, gave up just one hit. He struck out seven. So he had seven strikeouts while throwing just 48 pitches. 33 of them were strikes. We knew that he had insane ability as a pitcher overall. David, I know you're extremely high on him heading into the season and was curious whether or not the Red Sox would kind of pull the trigger on him transitioning to the rotation. It's happened less than a month into the season here. Could his ability as a starter be the difference for the Red Sox chances in the American League East? Well, yes. The short answer is yes. He, he can be that big of a contributor. And secondly, you know, he was so valuable as a reliever, but you want more out of him, right? Just, just, just as a straight up volume question, get more innings out of him. You can only do that in the rotation. Um, Alex Cora talked about wanting to get him in the rotation. And when Alex says something, you believe him because he did he, he, there's no fluff with, with Alex Corey. He said, look, this is what we see. Uh, this is what we want to do. So it didn't take him long to get him in the rotation. And I, I applaud it. We've seen it coming, you know, Whitlock, when he, when he was with the Yankees, he was kind of a fastball changeup guy. He needed to learn how to spin it to get a better breaking ball to go with the great fastball and the changeup. And he's done that progressively and it's gotten better and better. And now he's ready for the rotation. He has three legitimate pitches. You know, I don't know if you'd grade his slider or his breaking stuff as above average yet, but it's trending that way. His fastball and his changeup are above average, so he's already got two plus pitches. He might have a third one in the making. Now that that's that's pretty good if you're going to be a starting pitcher in the big leagues. 
I think it's great. We know what we have in Evaldi. He's fantastic. But other than that, in the Red Sox rotation, it's a lot of question marks. Nick Pavetta has struggled. Michael Waka has looked good, but he's probably more of a good in smaller doses type of guy, similar to Rich Hill. So if you can get more out of Whitlock, the extend the extended innings that he'll give you as a starter uh, could be more valuable as great as he was in the pen could be more valuable. So I think it's great that he's moving in the rotation and there's always the bullpen as a fallback. If things don't work out, it's easier to go back that way than the other way around. Yeah, you think the Red Sox were pressed to make this move as early as they did because Nick Pavetta is kind of struggling out of the gate. I know after his postseason emergence last year, there probably were higher expectations for him heading into this season, but between him, between Rich Hill, like you said, James Avaldi's kind of been that guy who's been able to always be there and provide that stability. I think they're just looking for, for more pieces to do the same. Yeah, definitely more pieces and somebody who's young and controllable for the next few seasons as well. They, you know, that, that's so valuable. Every organization is, is dying to develop pitching, especially young starting pitching. And it, it's a real feather in your cap when you can do that. And even though he was a rule five draft, Red Sox have done a good job of developing him and continuing his involve, his involvement as a pitcher. And now he's he's got a chance to be a fixture in their, their starting rotation for the next several years. All right. In the always exciting game of pass the baton, David, I know you've always talked about this on certain teams that you've been on. Every pitcher who is tasting success, they just kind of want to hand that off. And, and the next day's pitcher wants to match or exceed what the – pitcher did the prior day and just keep that going and that's the mark of an excellent team here so when we take a look at the top rotations in the game is the milwaukee brewers starting rotation the best at playing past the baton what do you guys think i'll defer to james here i'll let i'll let james go first here i've got a couple of thoughts but i'm gonna i'm gonna wait all right uh sure uh, we have burns and woodruff at the top um they've looked a lot better lately and after after their first couple turns and then past the baton freddie peralta is an underrated guy and then even look at the game that eric lauer had last week or last night on uh, on sunday night big game on national tv racking up strikeouts something that you don't really see out of him very often so yeah how about the brewers rotation for, for passing the baton i agree the best five in the game you know one through five they are it Every single one of them, really, I guess you could say at least four out of the five are potential number ones. You know, that's kind of what we had back in the 90s with the Yankees, where all of our rotation members kind of took turns of being the number one guy. One year it was Andy Pettit. One year it was El Duque. One year it was David Wells. One year it was Roger Clemens when he came over. One year it was me. So, you know, you had that kind of rotation where, you know, the pass the baton thing works when you, when you have talent and when you have guys that, that, uh, that want the ball. And that are excelling. And that's what the Brewers have. They have the stuff. They have uh, good balance, good diversity as well. I'm a big believer in diversity in lineups, diversity in starting pitching rotations. I've heard that for years. So opposing hitters would say, man, it's a different look every night. You know, one night we're facing Sid Fernandez. The next night is Doc Gooden. The next night is Bobby Oida throwing changeups. It's that diversity of style is, is very underrated in today's game. Hard to quantify. The Brewers have that. They have diversity of style. And, uh, you know, Lauer gives them that. The lefty, the improvement of him, the way he pitched on Sunday Night Baseball was was incredible. 13 strikeouts. Uh, 
you know, they, they really have it. They have sinker ballers, they have gas, they have cutters, they have a lefty, uh, you know, it really, it really does bode well for them moving forward. They are the best five starters in the game right now. I think the Mets and the Dodgers would like to have a word on this. I'm sure of that, but let me put it this way. Cause I'm in agreement with both of you here, one through five. And if the Brewers ever dealt a name like an Adrian Hauser or an Eric Lauer or Freddie Peralta to a team like the Mets or the Dodgers, it'd be really tough to imagine those pitchers not cracking the rotations of the Mets and the Dodgers right now. So I think that's all you need to know about where the Brewers are one through five at the moment. I'm, I'm in total lockstep with you guys. The Milwaukee Brewers are the early past the Badon champions here in the third week of April. Um, all right, the Seattle Mariners, they are in first place in the AL West. And the cool thing is we're recording this on Monday, and there are some games on Monday, but obviously this is a podcast that comes out every Tuesday. Regardless, the Seattle Mariners are going to be in first place when this podcast is released on Tuesday. They are near the top of the American League in virtually every pitching category. Why should everyone believe that this starting rotation for Seattle is more than just Robbie Ray and some other guys? Well, I think Logan Gilbert broke out last year. He's for real, and he's backing it up this year. He's gotten out of the gates extremely fast. Uh, so, yeah, he's real. We saw him last year. He shut down the Yankees in, in one game out in Seattle last year. And deceptive fastball, writing, got action on it, good, good repertoire, good stuff, good breaking ball. So, yes, Logan Gilbert, you can believe. He started last year. It's going to continue this year. The one guy to me that's almost the, the, the young – super stuff guy to watch and Matt Brash. If you haven't seen Matt Brash pitch, I mean, he is fun to watch. He's a blitz ball guy. If you like to watch movement and high velocity upper nineties and a, and a slider that breaks like a wiffle ball or a blitz ball that that that's Matt Brash right now. So yes, very exciting, young power arm to watch, you know, Marco Gonzalez and Chris, Chris Flexen are nice back in rotation pieces, uh, you know, not Milwaukee Brewers, you know, overall depth, uh, comparatively speaking, but yes, you know, when you, you got uh, Robbie Ray, you've got uh, Logan Gilbert and you got Matt Brash in your top three. Yeah, that, that's legit. And, it, and they're fun to watch. Brash was blowing up pitching Ninja in his major league debut, uh, really getting a lot of buzz there. And I love Logan Gilbert. You mentioned Tyler McGill, uh, up at, early in the show there, Coney talk about the extension that Gilbert gets. He's another one of these guys that gets more than seven feet of extension. So it is, like you said, he's like handing the ball to the catcher. He's fantastic. And Chris Flexen's a, a great find by them. He had a good year last year. He can, he can back it up with another good season this year. It is going to be more than uh, just Robbie Ray and a few other guys in Seattle. Yeah, I think we could have probably have had Matt Brash and his slider on our list of new pitches from earlier in the episode but you know he's a new pitcher altogether so we you know we, we didn't include him there because everything's new at least in in the major leagues the pure movement on that pitch though is excellent and yeah the ninja did a great job documenting that over his first few outings and i'll tell you what the mariner bullpen it was obviously solid last year they traded kendall graveman at the trade deadline they overcame that obstacle but I think they're doing a good job just kind of weathering the storm until 
they have all their pieces in place. I mean, Paul Seawald, he, he's going to be returning from the COVID IL, but they have a, a few different looks that I think make bullpens in today's game. So imposing between Seawald, Eric Swanson, he's, he's proven that he could be a pretty good asset. He has a nasty splitter. And then you have the guy who's thrown triple digits all the time. And Andres Munoz, I think this Mariner bullpen can play up. Another thing that I believe separates the Mariners from a lot of other teams right now is that the fact that they've been throwing innings from right out of the gate. I think, you know, Robbie Ray and, and others here, they have, I know Robbie Ray for, for sure. He's thrown no fewer than six innings in every start. And again, the abbreviated spring between relief pitcher usage, that's where the Mariners are a little bit different here. They're, starters are going deeper in games than most teams can they keep that up can they keep that rate up oh we'll have to wait and see but they're doing something that is a little bit different from the norm at this present time and history has shown that when you're doing something different from the pack and and you have the quality pieces to pull that stuff off good things are going to come so they're logging innings and i think that's pretty valuable in this day and age all right guys this day in pitching history we've arrived here to the third week of april or so james what do you have for us all right we're going to jump ahead a little bit may 1st 1920 so that's 102 years ago this coming sunday the longest mlb game ever joe eschger of the boston braves and leon cador of the brooklyn robins pitched 26 inning complete games in a 1-1 tie a 26 inning game at braves field in boston Eschger didn't allow a hit in the last nine innings. Cador uh, retired 19 in a row going into the 26th inning. Then finally at 6.50 p.m., this is the time before lights in the ballparks, after the 26th inning, the plate umpire and the managers agreed it's too dark to continue. Eschger said it was the hitters who were complaining too much. They could have kept going. Cador couldn't lift his arm to comb his hair for three days. He estimated that he threw about 300 pitches. He told Eschger, who himself thought that he threw about 250 pitches, he said, we've ruined ourselves. Cador said he was never the same after the game. Eschger said his arm didn't hurt, but the rest of his body did. And soon after, he pulled a muscle in his leg and was out for a few weeks. Eschger ended up living to be 94 years old, and he was the last surviving player from that game. Baseball history, May 1st, 1920, a 26-inning game and a 1-1 tie. The uh, mark of durability, both in the uh, in the game sense and in life. <laughs> it's, uh, that, that's that's pretty impressive. Yep. Pretty just, impressive. Just spit some tobacco juice on your arm. You'll be okay. <laughs> Rub it in there. What, what year was that again? 1920. 1920. Wow. Wow. All those pitches. Holy Holy crap. I was just going to say, holy crap, I was going to hold it back. But my gosh, um, there's tough things to wrap your head around just where we're going here in the, in the age of relief usage, right? 53%. Um, man, that is, that is awesome. Um, we, we just passed, I think, the anniversary of the longest baseball game period that happened in the International League. I th- the, uh, what, the Pawtucket, Rochester? Yeah, with Boggs and Ripken, yeah. Right, right. That made me remind me of that. Okay. Uh, but that game picked up like months later. Um, I think, they, you know, it was suspended in April, started back up again in June. Uh, that is something that 
we could talk about, I guess, once June rolls around when they had the conclusion of that game. Uh, three up, three down, guys. Where we gave some love to a pitcher or another pitching topic that we have seen unfold over the last week or so. Someone we think you need to watch in the coming week. James, you hinted to what you had in store for us before we started recording. And my gosh, this is like Plufian levels of predictions here. Describe it here. And it ties into Miguel Cabrera's 3000th hit. So I'd like to thank Antonio Senzatella um, for his, uh, for his game over the weekend. Now we had our preseason predictions show in the, the last, in the last show before opening day, we gave, you know, our playoff teams, we, we talked about, you know, we did, we did some great things with the over-unders on various props and things. On Twitter, I, I took some of those, our, our guesses for awards, who wins the Cy Young. I also do get a little weird with some of them. You know, in years past, you know, how many catchers interferences is Jacoby Ellsbury going to have? Or who's going to hit for the cycle? Who's going to pitch for, a, who's going to pitch a no-hitter? Uh, so this year, I included... Uh, with my predictions, Miguel Cabrera's 3,000th hit. And I said, Sunday, April 24th, at home against the Rockies with a single off Antonio Senzatella. Well, I was off by one day. It was Saturday the 23rd, but Miggy got the milestone. He became the 33rd member of the 3,000 hit club, and he did it with a single off Antonio Senzatella. It's, I posted it on Twitter and people were freaking out. How in the world did you do this? A lot of strangers. So it must have started making the rounds. So I got a kick out of it. And I'm glad uh, Antonio Senzatella, a fellow Venezuelan uh, with, Miguel, with Miguel Cabrera, was very happy, uh, was taking it in stride and was proud of his countrymen to, to make history. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you're on the wrong end of a, of a milestone like that, there's no bitterness with uh, Senzatella. He, he took it well. And I'm glad that uh, he, he made me a prophet. That is remarkable. That is the most important thing at the end right there. The profit part. What, uh, what thought went into that? Was it completely random or did you have something behind that? Well, going into the season, I did make a little bit of an educated guess. Okay. He needs 13 hits to start the year. Looking, you know, I just figured, you know, early, you know, late April. And I just figured, all right, I want want him to get it at home. So I I picked that Rocky series and Antonio Sensatello was kind of, it was kind of a bit of a random name. Wait, you were a day late or I was a my prediction was a day late. So well, he I'll tell you got what, a, they got rained out. So right. So I would have been two days off if he had gotten it off yeah. Sensatella. Okay. It was supposed to be yeah. Friday. My math, my count day counting skills are completely shot. Um Aaron, okay. Aaron Boone cooperated too by walking him <laughs> on the last Yankee game. That's right. That's true as well. Uh David, speaking of Yankees, <laughs> who do you want to shed a spotlight on here? Well, it, it, to me, you know, we talked about Garrett Whitlock with, with the Boston Red Sox breakout reliever. Could he be a starter? Where's the value on the Yankees? It's Michael King. He deserves some love. That outing was just incredible. The eight strikeout outing, uh, the seven in a row, the combination is one, two punch of the two seam fastball and the four seam fastball are legit. His new Corey Kluber like slider is legit it's like the light bulb went off with him. I can't wait to see him pitch again. That's how good he looked. And that's how real his stuff is. It's, it's sort of like, like you said, Shaq, can we believe this? You know, when you look at these pitchers, is this real? Is it sustainable? Yes. Yes. And yes. With Michael King, all of it is real and sustainable and the confidence that he has on the mound. That's something you can't teach. He's got that killer instinct on the mound and going, going right after hitters going right after Ramirez with Cleveland. 
one of the hottest and best hitters in the game. He's like, I don't care who you are. Boom, boom, boom. Go sit down. That kind of attitude is something you can't teach as well. That's a separator for me. Michael King is stuff. He's great. Upper 90s with his four-seamer, two-seamer that runs like crazy and a really good sweeping slider now. But uh, onions. Raftery, what's he say? Bill Raftery, the Hall of Fame uh, broadcaster in, in basketball. Uh, onions. Yeah. Michael King, onions. Yes. That's right. Send it in, Michael. King has has a disgusting amount of confidence for being on the mound. And Aaron Boone called it like a, a good type of cockiness when you're out there. And Michael King is as nice of a dude as you can meet on a baseball team. He's just so down to earth, makes time for you. But then like when he gets on the mound, I'm not saying like he turns into this mean snarling pitcher that, you know, makes you think of a guy like, you know, Roger Clemens. But he just has that swag. I hate using the word swagger, but he has that swagger. He has that cock, yeah. that cockiness that he just kind of rolls around with. He does like the, you know, it's like your your Vince McMahon walking down the aisle. I mean, everything about him screams confidence. It's really impressive because I think that that outing was kind of his coming out party to the rest of Major League Baseball. I think if you're a Yankee fan and you've been watching Yankee games, you kind of knew that he had this type of potential, but. He really showed it with the way he attacked the Guardians and specifically Jose Ramirez over the weekend. David, when you have a guy with that type of confidence, and also he's in the bullpen, but he has four quality pitches. I don't care how healthy and strong and easygoing it is right now with the state of your starting rotation. How much do you have to think about putting that guy into your starting five? He's definitely tempting. Uh, the, the fact that they're keeping him stretched out too. It's not like he could do anything. You could use him in high leverage spots in the eighth inning. If you wanted, we saw him bail out a world Chapman in the ninth inning and a great save with the bases loaded, uh, but he's still stretched out three, four innings at a time. So that transition to get him in the rotation, if needed, could be, could be done in, in, a, in short order. Um, but you're right. I mean, the difference I mean, to me, it's, you see confidence and you see conviction. You know, I like, you know, these, these words you like to throw out there. Conviction to me is the inner cons, the, the inner conceit, so to speak, or the, you know, the conviction behind, no, I have great stuff. I know it. And I show it by how I throw my pitches with conviction. Confidence is kind of outwardly, you know, the little bit of swagger and the strut. He's got both. He's mm -hmm. got conviction behind his pitches. He's got confidence and a little strut and a step, but he could easily be stretched out a little bit more and thrown right into the rotation as needed. Big 42 pitches in both of his last two outings. So not everybody has to be in one box. This guy throws 100 pitches in a game. This guy throws 10 pitches in a game. He can be a, in, a, in a long role. He's done the short outing, like, like Coney mentioned, and three dominant innings against Cleveland on Friday night. Yeah, I'm excited to see more from him for sure moving forward uh, as this season progresses. One team's rotation who I think you need to pay attention to here that doesn't get enough love and particularly because it's small market you don't think of them as winners but you need to pay attention to the Miami Marlins rotation Pablo Lopez the ERA leader in the National League we know Sandy Alcantara's ability he's already doing his thing as a sub two ERA through a handful of starts he tossed eight scoreless in his last start but keep an eye on Jesus Lazardo. He may need to keep working here to kind of be consistent, but he is showing the promise that 
made him a, a big time prospect with the Oakland A's. He's, he's in Miami, obviously in this Marlins rotation with Lopez, with Alcantara has wipeout stuff when he's on. We saw it against the Braves. He sat them down. He has this slider slurve that just eats up right-handers down and in moves away, obviously from lefties like that back foot slurve and mixing that up with the fastball when he is on. And I think he's young enough where you're still waiting for him to kind of put it together on a consistent outing by outing type of basis. He brings a, a big three element to the Miami Marlins. So Jesus Lazardo is someone that I think you, you need to watch for his next start after what he was able to do and carve up that, that Braves offense. It was really impressive. Dynamic arm action, the delivery. <clears throat> when I saw him throw Shaq, he looked, <clears throat> excuse me, looked like almost like a young Johan Santana. You know, the, 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 how fast his arm was, the way he finishes. Yeah, he, he's legit, without a doubt. 23 Ks and 14 <clears throat> in the third inning. Sign me up. Incredible. Oh, I'll tell you what, David, you have a matchup on Sunday between two teams. They're going to be seeing a lot of the Marlins. Coming up uh, in 2022, you have Phillies and Mets. What are you looking forward to with those two teams going at it? You know, it, it, it's shaping up to be where the, the Mets have a chance to kind of run out, you know, and, and get out there a little bit and, and cushion the cushion a lead a bit. And the Phillies are the ones that need to make a statement. You know, some, some series you get together and it, it's more important to one team or another. It's a really important matchup for the Phillies right now to get it going. They're built around their offense. The Mets have great pitching. It's going to be going to be an interesting matchup, but I know just having talked to Joe Girardi, I know they, he feels like the, he likes his club. He thinks they're coming around. Uh, Bryce Harper is still in the DH, you know, nursing a little bit of an elbow issue, but uh, the Phillies need this one. They need that series. And then of course, you know, on Sunday night, it, it's a, it's a big chance for them to, to kind of show the world that they're, they're going to be a contender this year. A lot of hype was made up with the NL East, but can the rest of the teams in that division keep the Mets from pulling away early? Something to watch for here. It's uh, pretty interesting. Guys, it's going to do it for this episode this week. Good one in. Big thanks, as always, to the incredible Dan Rourke holding down the fort, making sure everything runs smoothly here. Reminder, new episodes of the show drop each and every Tuesday, every week. Please rate, review, subscribe. Best way that you can show support here for the show. Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.